0: That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Truth. Truth. Truth.
1: So another Seattle case that I'd like to talk about, which is just as interesting, if not more interesting, is the Ali Muhammad Brown case, which is super bizarre considering this happened in, in Seattle, Washington, of all places. Uh, yeah. Can you, can you break down this case and talk about your involvement in this case, as well as any firsthand experiences with him?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I was, my partner and I were primaries in that case too. Uh, so uh, my phone rang at two thirty in the morning on June 1st, 2014. Uh, I woke me up out of bed. They said, there's a double homicide at 29th and King street, which is only, ironically only like four blocks from where uh, Tim Brenton was killed. But so we, I went up there while I, when I got this, I was getting dressed and I was, you know, I thought this was a gang related case because that area, there had been a lot of gang shootings, gang related shootings lately. And it was a pretty hotbed of that kind of activity. So i thought, sure I was going up to a gang related homicide. So I got there and there's two young black males laying dead in the street. Um, One of them been shot at least once or twice in the head, but the, the second one was shot like multiple times right in the face. There was even stippling on his face. There were close range shots. So that tells me this guy was more of a target than the other guy. I don't know why. Why was he more of a target? Well, go All right, well this one had, again, this one had its share of rabbit holes, too, because we're standing here at this scene. By this time, it's 3.30, 4 o'clock in the morning, and the radio dispatcher gets on, says there's a guy just called in, says his brother told him he just shot somebody in the face. He needs him to pick him up. He's down by the freeway downtown. And so we think, this is our guy. This guy's shot in the face. He's calling and the the brother called the police instead of getting him. And long story short, we go through this whole thing. We go down that rabbit hole, find out who this guy is. He's got, he was previously arrested on an investigation of murder charge, but never charged. He's a gangbanger, he's got a felony warrant for gun running out, a federal warrant. So we're out looking for him. Uh, In the meantime, I bring these guys. I get their information, and I'm back in my office. And I'm running a, What I do with these guys? Is I run their names, try to get their last booking photos. So I have pictures of my victims when they were alive. But neither one of these guys have any criminal history. Which I thought, well, that's weird. They don't have any criminal history at all. And I thought maybe they're phony names or something. Or I don't know. And it ends up they weren't gang bangers at all. Uh, as it ended up, first of all, we we end up going this rabbit hole and getting this guy in, who. Supposedly called his brother and said he's gonna be shot in the face. We went and talked to the brother who was a family man, had worked at Boeing, not at all a criminal. He says, I'm, I you know I've been covering for my brother my whole life. I can't do it anymore. I got a family. I can't have my family involved in this stuff. But so we picked this guy up and he says, You know, I didn't, I, no, I didn't do it. I didn't shoot anybody. I didn't tell him I shot anybody. I believe he did tell him he shot somebody. But long story short, he said he's at this casino, ironically, in Tukwila, the same city that Montfort was at. And, uh, and he told us he was there. So we, of course, one thing good about casinos is they have really good surveillance video. So we go down and get the surveillance, or have somebody, we have people that do that, go get the surveillance video for that time at the casino. And we'll watch it and sure as heck about, we see him walking in the door 10 minutes before the 911 call came in, which is over 10 miles away. So he is not our guy. So we have to drop that and go all the way back to the beginning. In the meantime, I get these guys, we have these guys' phones. I give them to the, we have people that dump phones for us. We dump the phones, get all the data off of them. And I see that one of the victims made a phone call at a little little past midnight. They were killed at about 2.15, 2.20 in the morning. So I look at that number, trying to figure out what's going on. Long story short, I finally just called the number. And this guy answered, and I tell him who I am. And he goes, yeah, um, Dewan, which is one of the two victims, he called me at, uh, at midnight, he was at our place tavern on Capitol Hill. Our place is uh, it's the letter R place is a gay bar on Capitol Hill. Both my victims are gay. That's what I find out. Both my victims are gay, and he goes. I went down there, and uh, Dwan was there with Saeed, who's the other guy, the other victim, and Saeed was on, a, on his phone like he was texting somebody. I think he was on Grinder, and he was, which is a, an app where gay men can meet up with other gay men that are near them geographically and so he said he was going to meet somebody outside afterwards so after the, it closed we all went outside and this guy came up and he and he's he's and he started talking to them. and i'm looking at this guy and I go, man he doesn't look right and i said you mean he didn't look gay yeah he did not look gay and so he says you know they offered me a ride home but this guy creeped me out i didn't want to go and i got this from two different people there and so he said then they walked over to Said's to where Saeed's car was parked to leave. And I said, Saeed's car? Nobody, this was, this was like three days later. Nobody told us that Saeed had a car that was missing. Now, so I'm like, what the heck? He goes, yeah, it was parked over here around the corner. And he showed me the spot where it was parked. And so one of the things I did is I had my people to get get uh, surveillance video, go up in that area and see if they could find any surveillance video. But then we called the victim's family and said, did he have a car? Oh, yeah, he had a car. It was a Mitsubishi. So Nobody mentioned that to us. So we run through Department of Licensing, and you, know, all cars owned by him, and we find this Mitsubishi. We put out literally put out a bulletin in the middle of an afternoon, have it have it broadcast citywide. We're looking for this car, and not ten minutes later, we get a call that a car in Southeast Seattle has found the car parked. So we have that car towed to what's called the Vehicle Processing Room. It's a place where we do. it. You know, look for evidence in cars, and one of the things about this car, when you look at it, on the passenger side rocker panel, there is literally dried blood that has poured out of that car, and it's like all smeared with blood. So this the shooting happened inside the car, and so we start we get that thing down to the processing room. Uh, I have my CSI people and then fingerprint techs go over it, and one of the fingerprint texts in the back backseat, dr- uh, driver's side backseat window, on the window itself, she found a palm print. She was able to lift that palm print and run it through AFIS, which is the Automated Fingerprint Identification System, and it came back to Ali Muhammad Brown. So our victim was Saeed Ahmed. He's a he's a, a Muslim male, and Ali Mohammed Brown is a Muslim name. Now, just because you find the fingerprint or something in the car Doesn't mean the killer left it there. It could be anybody, right? So I, I, we call the family. Do you know Ali Muhammad Brown? Nobody never heard of him. So now that we think that's our guy, I run his name. He's got a long criminal history. He was uh, arrested for bank fraud, conspiracy to commit bank fraud, where they were sending, doing phony checks and then sending the money to uh, like ISIS and stuff over in the Middle East. And he's also got a rape of a child charge. So we start. He put out the dogs. We're looking for all you know, I run his name. And I, uh, when I ran his name, I found out he was arrested just a couple months before down in uh, Siskiyou, California. For um, he, he, I forgot what the thing was, but he was driving a silver Dodge Durango and he was stopped. It wasn't a serious crime. He got arrested. So I have, uh, I'm looking for that, looking for those vehicles. And like an hour later, we get a call from county detectives who work this area outside the city and King County. And one of them was a friend of ours. His name is Jake Pavlovich. He says, I'm look, I'm working on this case. I'm looking for a, uh, my shooter was driving a Silver Dodge Durango. And I go, you're what? You gotta be kidding me. I tell him, we just had a double and I know that guy has a Silver Dodge Durango. And so I go, go on over here because their offices are only right across the street. So they came over to our office and I, we talked about, what kind of gun did you have? It had a nine millimeter. It's been that the crime lab says it was an M&P, uh, Smith & Wesson M plus B, which is military plus police. And so uh, that's what mine said. So I call, we call the crime lab and I tell the guy, I want you to compare our shells to his, his casings. And he does. And he says they're the same gun. So his guy happened in April with just some guy walking down the street, Leroy Henderson. He'd gone to the store for his uncle and just walking down the street and a car comes past him and just shoots him multiple times for no apparent reason. And this kid's not a gangbanger either. Matter of fact, his family moved him from, he le- lived in Gary, Indiana, and his family moved him to live with the uncle in Seattle because there was so much gang activity they didn't want him to get caught up in it. And ironically, he comes here and gets killed. So uh, we uh, well, now we matched our case and Again, we're putting everything out. We put something out in the news that we're looking for this guy with his picture, all Brown, for murder. And a few, a couple of days later, I get a call from a detective in Point Pleasant Beach, New Jersey. And his name's Clint Daniels, and he calls me and he says, "Hey, this is on the Jersey Shore." He says, "We got this. We had a, a guy try to carjack somebody in our town last night, and..." But he, he got in the car, but it was a stick. He didn't know how to drive a stick, so he took off running, and he went into a store, he got surveillance for him, and so the same guy had been in a restaurant the night before and ordered meal but didn't have any money to pay it, and so he asked him to call his brother, and, let, and his brother gave him a credit card over the phone. So uh, this Detective Daniels went to this restaurant and said, do you still have the number? you call? Oh, yeah, it's right here. So he called the brother, and he goes, hey, I'm just trying to make sure to clear up this whole restaurant thing. That was your brother, right? He goes, yeah, what is his name again? He says, Ali Muhammad Brown. He gives him his birthday. And so he says, I ran his name and he's wanted for murder in Seattle. He goes, oh my God. And so he's telling me this. He had, he the guy ran into a store where he changed clothes or something. And they had a surveillance picture. He sent me that surveillance picture. This is the same guy. It's him, right? So uh, then the guy says, uh, you know, a couple days ago, up in West Orange, which is 150 miles from him. It's right up across the river from Manhattan. He says, there was a murder of a, of a 19-year-old kid. It just seemed real random. And I wonder if that could be him. And so I said, I don't know. So I, I call over to, it's with Essex County Homicide Task Force is the ones we're investigating. It's in Newark. And I talked to somebody over there. They, oh, no, no, this is a robbery gone bad. We got a couple of people in mind. And I said, Well, what kind of gun was used? And he goes, What well, was a Smith and Wesson M plus P nine millimeter? I go, that's the same one as kind of gun as ours. I said, When that whole, when that whole uh, robbery thing goes down the toilet, give me a call back. <laughs> okay, and he hangs up, well, a couple days later, can I can I can you send me some casings? Yeah, we'll send you some casings. We sent it to him. Same gun. So now we know it's the same guy. Uh, they put out the dogs there, they're looking all over for him. Um, he's committing robberies. they got a bunch of robberies that are going on, because that's how he's supporting himself. They find all this stuff. And, and long story short, one day they find him sleeping in, a, in, in the yard of this mansion overlooking Manhattan, but he's in the bushes. And fortunately, he was asleep and he got there because he's got the gun in his pants and they're able to arrest him. So the, the next day, myself and Jake Pavlovich from the county and a couple of the guys fly back to Newark and we interview him in jail which is not a good is never a good thing to try to interview somebody in jail but we had to and he says that you know basically says that this is all payback for all the u.s deaths in uh syria iraq and afghanistan and that these, these what do you care about these few people for and he, he basically says he was on his jihad and that's what he did and so he got charged there again in seattle i had to fly back for a pre-trial hearing in uh, newark and then i was after we after that was over, he suddenly changed his plea to guilty. And and when he said against his attorney's advice, and then he said, Yeah, and I killed those guys in Seattle too. So uh, basically that was it. And then ironically though, I mean this happened in 2014. He was just sentenced three weeks ago in Seattle for the crimes. They finally got back and he wouldn't talk to his lawyer and he couldn't enter a plea, and finally he did. And he was just sentenced, and I think he's going back to do If he's not there already, going back to do his time in New Jersey.
1: Yeah, and he got, what, like 93, 97 years, something like that in Washington?
2: Yeah, well, uh, yeah, uh, consecutive to the life without possibility of parole. So he's never getting out of prison.
1: So has he ever been labeled, like, a domestic terrorist by the FBI?
2: Well, no. Well, the FBI, when they find out that two two gay men were were, – murdered. they wanted they were all over this case they talked about getting it but then they found out it was only terrorism they lost all interest and he was charged in a, he he was convicted also of a state terrorism charge in New Jersey the first the first uh, conviction of a charge of terrorism and he is a domestic terrorist he was a radicalized he was born a muslim but he was radicalized when he was about 14 or 15 his brothers were radical or still are i'm sure and that's how he got involved in that whole funding thing for the for ISIS and those type of groups. And he, his plan was to get over there, but he couldn't to go over to the middle East and live with them, but he couldn't get over there.
1: So do you know if he ever actually had like any firsthand, like contact with ISIS or ISIL or anybody like that?
2: Uh, well, he did tell me I'd, I'd heard, and I, he confirmed to me that he did attend the uh, the terrorist training camp down in central Oregon a few years ago. And so he did. So he, he was, you, he, you know, is he a lone wolf? Probably, although he did have contact with uh, terrorists here in the U.S.
1: Hmm. Do you think that had any type of like negative impact on the Muslim community in Seattle?
2: No, I mean, you know, he, he, he was radicalized. I mean, it's not it's there's a, it's two different things, you know, right. he was radicalized jihadist. It, it is, and, you know, he was matter of fact, one of the things he told me is when he went to New Jersey, he tried to stay in these mosques, and he hoped these people would take him in, but they didn't want anything to do with him. He had, you got to leave here. You can't stay here, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, because they know that's going to bring heat down on them, and that stuff. So that that's the thing.
1: Hmm. Huh, that's pretty interesting. Uh, yeah, both both cases are are pretty, you know, interesting, and I, I never really. Knew until recently that Monfort actually, you know, had like those bombs rigged and everything.
2: I that was something new that I learned about the other day. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. he had this all planned out. He was doing research on, you know, we traced him to a gun show, found where he bought the fuses. We traced him to uh, where he got the rifle, and in and, and his computer searches, we got a ton of information off his computer of what he was looking up and researching. You know, specifically targeting. Seattle police, he was also targeting LA police. I actually called down to LA because we knew he had taken a trip to LA a couple of months before and asked them if they had any weird stuff like that going on and then they go, oh my God, no. But so, you know, that's the, this, is, this was a, I'm sure years in the planning frame. You know, the thing is he had a, He had no criminal history. He had a BA in uh, uh, criminal justice. Mm-hmm. And the other car he drove besides this one was a former police cop with push bars and everything. And he, But he just was an odd duck. You know, we talked to people, women that went out with him. They said, "You know, he just was weird. It was like run, do not walk to the nearest exit." Those are the vibes I got. And hmm. you know, like I said, he was just—he was—he was radicalized too. Is it because he—he he couldn't become a police officer? I don't know. You know, he had some confusion. His mother was a prostitute. I don't think he knew who his dad was. And so, you know, it's like there were a lot of issues there.
1: Yeah, that's, that's really interesting. And it's interesting that he, like when he was arrested, he got sh- shot up, kind of like the Fort Hood shooter, Nadal Hassan. He's a paraplegic in prison now. You know, the guy right. that shot up right. that military base. And right. it's, uh, you know, pretty interesting cases.
2: I don't think he's, I don't think he intended to survive the incident. I think he, uh, but that's why he was trying to get back to his room. So I guess start his whole go out in a blaze of glory thing. But
1: uh, did anybody ask him why he didn't just, off himself
2: well we we never had a chance to actually interrogate him because he was in the hospital for being shot for days and he had been charged and had an attorney by that time so we couldn't go interrogate him i did talk to him a couple times when i was bringing him over from the jail for like to get a dna sample but i can't really interrogate him
1: right right and and the whole time that you're talking to him while you're transporting him like you're you're calm and cool and and all that with him?
2: Oh, yeah. Matter of fact, he, I was pushing him. He, he was in a wheelchair and there's a tunnel that connects the downtown main jail with police headquarters. I'm wa- pushing him through the tunnel. And he said, first of all, thank you for being nice to his mom. Because I was always nice to his mom. It's not her fault, right? And I said, oh, that's fine. It's not her fault. And then uh, he started talking to me about weird stuff. He'd go up. Uh, he said like, you know that, you know, the the you ever watch the movie, The Blue Knight? Which of course was based on a book. I said, "Yeah, I've watched the movie and I and I read the book too." He goes, "Now that was community policing," and I thought to myself, "You know, that's fiction, right? You know, that's the thing." He doesn't. And the other thing he would do is, you know, there were dozens of pretrial hearings, and for most of them, the the media showed up in the press, and he would he would uh, erupt in the middle of the meeting and yell stuff and you know just disrupt because he wanted to, when the cameras were on. when the cameras weren't there, he didn't do any of that stuff.
1: Hmm. Kind of like, kind of like Harrison Court. Yeah. Hmm. Huh. Um. Well, with all that, I want to thank you for giving me your time and expertise today, and I always enjoy chit-chatting with you. And we'll have to do it again in the future, again and again. There's so many cases we can go over, and with your law enforcement experience, I'm sure there's stories for days and days and days.
2: There, sure there are. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Thank you very much. I